Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean, and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. God has been faithful to us, even when we fail to see or recognize or acknowledge God's faithfulness. God has been. And today, we have an opportunity um, to consider a few passages of Scripture where you and I are called to learn how to recognize God's faithfulness and to live with grateful action because of it. I'm going to encourage you to turn in your Bibles, but I want you to turn in your Bibles to a place not printed in your text. We're going to be talking about John chapter 6 in just a moment. That's what's in your, your, your order of worship. But I want you to, to mark your place at Deuteronomy 8. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, we're going to begin in verse 6. And we're going to dive deeply into the text today. Uh, but we're going to begin with a word of prayer. Would you join me? God, your people are gathered in your name right now all over the planet. And you see them. You see them here and you see them all over um, wherever they are gathered. And you know what it has taken to get them to you. You know what it has taken to get us to you. You know what it's taken to get the mind and the heart, even for a few short moments, to focus upon you right now. There's so many worthy draws upon our energy and attention this week. There are so many memories of the week that we have had that your worshipers right now are thinking about the, the results of, the implications of, all of the interactions and the encounters that they had with family, with neighbors, with co-workers. And even now, it's, it's quite possible for us to only be thinking, Lord, about so many more encounters that happened this week, beginning today and moving on into a, a busy, busy Thanksgiving week. May we ask that for a, sh a short moment or two, you... You clear our minds and you liberate our hearts so that we are free enough to only see you. May we see you. Because if we can just see you, everything else will be fine. In the name of Christ Jesus, the Lord of life, amen. Thanksgiving may be the most authentically Christian holiday that we have. Now, you're probably saying, uh, well, you've not been to Thanksgiving at my house then. <laughs> I get it. I know. 
I know, I get it. But Thanksgiving may be the most authentically Christian holiday we have. Now, don't get me wrong. I know it's not a technically a Christian holiday. It's celebrated by all religions, all people of faith or of no faith. But Christmas and Easter, now those are our linchpin holidays. That's what gives our story our story, right? That's, that's where we celebrate the birth and the death and the resurrection of Christ, Christmas and Easter. Those are the linchpins. But let's be honest, you know that those holidays can, can be so merged with cultural traditions and celebrations that, that even our families uh, can sometimes be uh, hijacked by the materialism and the consumerism of this current age, right? Or you might even say those holidays can be soul-jacked. But Thanksgiving... I mean, at the heart of thanksgiving, when done rightly, thanksgiving is intended to evoke something of worship in us. Thanksgiving at its purest form is intended to evoke worship in which we acknowledge that we have been given life. And we say thank you, if only for a day. In the New Testament, there is a word that shows up about 38 times for the word thanksgiving or giving thanks. The word is eucharisteo. Eucharisteo offers so much more than just thanksgiving. If we study the word eucharisteo, we recognize that even in the anatomy of the word, the way it's put together, the structure, the architecture of the word eucharisteo, there are messages. The word itself is intended to evoke some grateful action out of us. This morning, I want us to, to do a couple of things. I want us to look deeply into that word, Eucharisteo, but not simply to have a word study. We could do that anytime. But after understanding the nature, the anatomy of the word itself, I want us to see how that word shows up at critical moments in the life of Jesus. And how Jesus embraces Eucharisteo, not just as a word to express thanksgiving, but as a kind of rhythm to live by. And if you and I can learn something about the Eucharistic rhythm, a Eucharistic lifestyle, the pattern of Jesus, we may be able to engage and adopt a rhythm that changes everything about what we think it means to be alive. Now, the word itself, Eucharisteo, is made up of a couple of words. I mentioned this last week. A couple other Greek words. At the core of Eucharisteo is this root, charis. Charis literally means grace. At the core of Eucharisteo is grace. But grace is also very closely related to another Greek word, a kind of cousin to that word. And the core, the root of charis is kara, which is joy. So I want you to kind of think in your mind that thanksgiving as a whole at the core of thanksgiving itself is both grace and joy. It's as if the word itself is its own sermon. That if you want to live a life that has authentic joy, you can't get to joy without first going through grace. 
joy, and grace. Now, that's good to know because I know a lot of people who are living what I would call joyless lives. Do you know anybody like that who lives a joyless life? And, and they may do everything uh, possible to, to create a life of joy. They may chase after joy with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. They may uh, land just the right job, live in just the right house, drive just the right car, uh, raise just the right family. They may surround themselves with all the right material comforts and luxuries and conveniences. And yet when you talk to them, you recognize there's something missing. Do you know what I'm talking about? There's this kind of flat affect where you recognize there's something, something missing and they will tell you it's missing. Because we forget that joy is not something we create. Joy is not something that we can earn or achieve or acquire or accumulate or go out and find. Joy comes, remember the New Testament lesson, joy comes as a fruit Remember, it's one of the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Joy is a fruit that grows out of a well-cultivated interior life where the Spirit abides with you in that hidden place. And out of that joy comes an awareness of all the grace that it has taken to get you where you are. True joy comes only, according to Eucharisteo, only when we can recognize that everything that we are and everything that we have is exclusively because of the grace of God. It is all gift. Every breath we breathe, every heartbeat in our chest, everything that we assume we have created and we have accumulated and we have acquired is grace only. And you say, well, yeah, but Sean, I, I get what you're saying. I, I kind of I get it, but I've worked really hard to get where I am. I mean, I've worked this job and I've, and I've earned this degree and, and it took me a lot of time and effort to arrive at the place where I am. And, and don't, you, don't you understand, I've kind, of, I've kind of done some of this on my own. Careful. I get where that line of thinking is coming from, but sisters and brothers, be careful of the trap of believing that any of us are self-made men and women. I've never met a self-made man or woman. Everything is grace. Everything is gift. In fact, there's this great story in the Old Testament, the Hebrew tradition, there's this great story. The people are rescued from bondage in Egypt, remember that? And they're going through the wilderness and for 40 years, they go from one trial to the next. For 40 years, they depend upon the grace of God to rescue them, to save them, to feed them. It's the grace of God that brings water from a rock. It's the grace of God that brings manna from heaven. It's the grace and mercy of God that delivers them from the serpents, that delivers them from the hand of, of their enemies that cross the Red Sea. It's grace upon grace upon grace. And now they come to a place in Deuteronomy 8, where they're camped out in the, in the plains of Moab and they're there at the river and just across the river, they see the promised land and they're about to cross over the promised land. This is what they've been working for. This is where they've been moving for 40 years, for an entire generation. And Moses, old Moses, wise Moses, shepherd Moses says to them, 
careful when you cross over the river. Because when you cross over the river, you will be prone to believe that you got where you are because you're just that good. But don't forget the grace of the Lord that brought you thus far. And in Deuteronomy 8, verse 12, we pick up the words here. Moses says, when you have eaten your fill and have built fine houses and live in them, and when your herds and your flocks have multiplied, and your silver and gold is multiplied, and all that you have is multiplied, then do not exalt yourselves forgetting the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrible wilderness and arid wasteland with poisonous snakes and scorpions. He made water to flow for you from a flint rock. And he fed you in the wilderness with manna that your ancestors did not know to humble you and to test you and in the end to do you good. Do not say to yourself, my power and the might of my own hand have gotten me this wealth. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, so that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your ancestors as he is doing this very day. If you do forget the Lord your God and follow and serve other gods, in fact, let's stop right there. Every time we read an Old Testament passage and we and they, they reference other gods. You and I think about the ancient Mesopotamian gods, you know, Baal, right? And the, the gods of the ancient Near East, right? But I hear this text and I think, uh, do not follow other gods like the God of self-sufficiency, the God of ego, the God of assuming that you are where you are because of the work of your own hands, the gods that you are called to avoid. And don't serve them and, go next slide, and worship them. I solemnly warn you that if you do, that you shall surely perish like the nations that the Lord is destroying before you, so shall you perish because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. Friends, Eucharisteo is an invitation. It's an invitation to trace the grace of God in your life. It's an invitation to trace the grace of God and allow the joy that comes from it to result in grateful action every day. When was the last time you allowed yourself to trace the grace? That's Eucharisteo. It's stopping long enough to trace the grace that has gotten you to where you are right now. But it's not enough to trace the grace and leave it there. When you trace the grace and recognize all that it has taken to redeem you and save you and sustain you, then we recognize the grace and respond to it with action, with action. And this is what Jesus did. Jesus lived his life with this kind of um, perpetual awareness of the grace that was always around us and in us all the time, everywhere. Every time he talked about the kingdom of God, saying, oh, the kingdom is breaking forth. It's here, it's there, it's in you. It's closer than you think. When he talked about the kingdom, he was perpetually aware of this grace that is always around us and always in, in us, sustaining our, our life. And so in the New Testament, when we hear the word eucharisteo, yeah, it appear, appears 38 times all throughout the New Testament. 
But so many of those times it appears in the life of Jesus where he is attempting to stop and draw the attention of the universe upon a grace that is unfolding. And not only does Eucharisteo appear in the life of Jesus one at a time, it doesn't just appear a word here and a word there, but usually in the life of Jesus, when Eucharisteo, thanksgiving, grace, joy, when it appears, it's a part of a, a very curious pattern, a rhythm. It's usually in conjunction with three other verbs. And I want to give you an example of what I'm talking about. There's this great story in John chapter 6. In John chapter 6, the crowds, the multitudes have grown, and it's just before the Jewish Passover. And the crowds are following, pressing in on Jesus. He crosses, goes across to the other side of the sea to avoid them for a little while, get some rest, but they show up again. And he sees them coming, and he says to one of the disciples, hey, where are we going to buy some, some bread for, for these many people to eat? Now watch what happens. One of the disciples, I think it's Philip, says, you're kidding, right? I mean, Lord, Master, Teacher, Rabbi, if, if we all had six months of wages, if we had a half a year of salary and combined it together, we, we would barely have enough resources for, for this many people to even have a bite, a morsel, just a part of the bread. About that time, Andrew, Peter's brother, steps in and says, well... I mean, it's not exactly true, Philip, but I mean, I get what you're saying, Philip. You're right. There's no way we can fund. There's no way that we can budget in such a way as to feed all of these people. But, but it's not like we, we don't have anything. I mean, because this, this boy, this kid has just offered his lunch and this boy has, well, he has five loaves of bread and he's got two fishes. And granted, it's a little absurd. It's a little absurd. It can't feed everybody. But, but let's not say that we don't have everything. Let's not say we don't have anything because we do have that. So Jesus says, well, then have them sit down on the grass. They sit down on the grass. And Jesus, the gospel writer John, tells us, creates an action that involves four verbs. He, he takes what they have, five loaves, two fishes, it's not much, but he takes them and he gives thanks for it. He doesn't look at what's in their hands and say, my goodness, where are all the other loaves? He doesn't say, look how many fish we're missing. He starts with, look what we have, and he gives thanks. And then the verb, he distributes, or in some texts, he breaks it and gives it to the crowd. He takes, he gives thanks, he breaks, and he gives that is a pattern that repeats again and again all through the Gospels. Now, to be clear, just a little program note here. In some places in the Gospel, that second verb, give thanks, is kind of replaced by another word. Where, whereas uh, eucharisteo, give thanks, is in pl some places replaced by uh, eulageo. Eulageo is the word from which we get eulogy. 
It means blessing. If you stand up and give a eulogy at someone's funeral, someone who is deceased, you stand up and you give a blessing and you give thanks for their life, right? So in the New Testament, the word blessing and the word give thanks in many places are interchangeable. So in some places, you're going to read, he took, he gave thanks, he broke, he gave. But in other places, you're going to read, he took, he blessed, he broke, and he gave. And that pattern, that quadratic pattern of took, blessed, broke, gave, repeats again and again and again all through the Gospels, especially in the places where we read about the feeding of the multitudes. There are a couple of different kinds of stories when it comes to feeding the multitudes. But even though there are a couple of different kinds of stories and four different kinds of Gospels, the same four verbs are used. I want you to to be curious with me as to why that's the case. We just heard from John, but Mark does the same thing. In Mark's gospel, he puts it this way. In Matthew's, let's do Matthew. In Matthew's gospel, he says, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and after giving thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples. In Mark's gospel, taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and blessed and broke and gave them. In Mark's gospel, again, a different feeding story. He took the seven loaves. After giving thanks, he broke them and gave them. In Luke's gospel, we hear, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked to heaven and blessed and broke and gave them. Again and again, regardless of what feeding story it is, it's the same rhythm. It's the same kind of Eucharistic rhythm of taking, breaking, or taking, blessing, breaking, and giving. Taking, blessing, breaking, and giving. But if we can go a step further. In the New Testament, it's not just about feeding stories where he repeats this pattern. On the last night of his life, when he's sharing the last supper with those who are closest to him, we watch and read the same verbs taking place. In Matthew's gospel, we read it this way. While they were eating, Jesus took a loaf of bread and blessing it, he broke it, gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup and after giving thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. In Luke's gospel, there's a similar telling of the same night when all is lost, right? In 24 hours, he's going to be dead. And in that moment, chooses to demonstrate with these four verbs the rhythm of life by which he and we are called to live. So Luke says, then he took the loaf of bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body The same is repeated, we won't read it again, but the same is repeated in Mark and the same is repeated in John. And I'm telling you, it's not just in the feeding stories and it's not in just the Last Supper stories. But even after the resurrection of Jesus, there's this wonderful story where two of the disciples are walking from Jerusalem back to Emmaus. Remember this story? And they're sad, they're they're joyless. (laughs) They're down because they recognize they saw him crucified, they saw him buried. Now they're on the long road back to Emmaus and this stranger comes to walk alongside them. It's at the end, Luke 24, where this story takes place. And they're walking along and they're talking about well, the Bible, talking about the events of the weekend. And when they reach Emmaus, this stranger who they don't recognize is the risen Christ attempts to keep moving on to the next town. And they say, well, it's getting late. It's getting dark. Come in and let's eat together and you stay with us tonight. 
They go in and fix a meal, and when it comes time to offer the blessing, they ask their guest, the stranger that they don't recognize, to offer the blessing. And guess which four verbs are used to describe the moment? Here are the words. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. Then their eyes were open and they recognized him. What does all this mean? It means that if our eyes can be open, we might be able to recognize in the taking and the blessing and the breaking and the giving that we read about, we might be able to recognize an invitation to a lifestyle that changes the way we live. Because at the end of the day, these are not just clever ways that the gospel writers are trying to tell us about old stories that happen. It's, it's, too, it's, it's too convenient for that. This rather is an invitation to a lifestyle, a lifestyle that I'm gonna to refer to as a Eucharistic life. The Eucharistic life is what God wants to do with you and with me. God wants to take to bless, give thanks, to break, and to give our lives away. Can I get you to consider for just a moment what it would look like for you to yield to the possibility that God wants to take your life, bless your life, break your life, and give your life? First, what would it look like to take the life that you've been given, to take the life that has come to you. When I say take, I don't mean uh, we reach out and we grab our life and hold on to it like a kung fu grip. I don't mean that we take our life as if to, to somehow be in charge of it or control of it. But what I mean by take is what, what would it look like if you could learn to receive the life that has come to you as the life that God intended to give you. To receive it with what, um, I love the, the 18th century uh, Jesuit priest, his name is Jean-Pierre uh, de Cossaud. He, he used to call others to give themselves to a kind of um, a present moment through what he called radical acceptance. He called his listeners to give themselves to the present moment, whatever the present moment is, with what he called radical acceptance. Can I let that phrase just hang out in front of your soul for just a minute? What would it look like in, in, in taking life? What would it look like to simply receive the life that God hands you with radical acceptance? But I don't want this part of my life, and I don't, I don't receive this part of, of the, the situation that's been handed me. You see, you and I spend so much time and energy and emotion resisting part of the life that's been handed us. We resist it. We're, we're resentful about it because why can't I have this person's life? Why can't I have that person's job? Why can't I have that person's family? <laughs> why, can't, why can't I have this and that and even their set of problems because they're so much easier than my set of problems? And we look at comparing our lives to others on such a, a frequent basis that we, we know nothing about what it takes to yield ourselves with radical acceptance Considering the possibility that the life God has handed you, God has handed to, to you on, on purpose. 
Because God can do something uniquely through the life he's handed you that he could not do if you simply reached out and grabbed somebody else's life and pretended to live it. The Eucharistic life, the pattern of Jesus, is to get to a place of yieldedness where we take the life that God has given us and we receive it as grace. And the second step of the Eucharistic life is not just we take, but we bless or we give thanks. We look at the life that God has put in our hands and instead of asking, why don't I have other loaves? Instead of saying, why don't I have a different variety of fish? We look at the five and the two that we do have and we thank God for it. Recognizing that the five and the two are grace. They are gifts. They are what God has intended to give us because God can do something through your five and your two that God can't do through a multitude of other gifts that you reach out and grab from somebody else. It's the five and the two in your hand that God wants you to give thanks for, to recognize as sheer grace. What is it that that is keeping you from seeing what you have rather than being blinded by what you don't. The Eucharistic life is the one that stands yielded and we take what God has given us with radical acceptance and we give thanks, we bless it, we say, you must know what you're doing, so I'll receive it and I thank you. I may not see how you're gonna use my five and two, but it's in my hands. And I thank you. But the third step of the Eucharistic life may be the hardest. We take, we bless, we break. That may be the hardest part of living the Eucharistic life, the pattern of Jesus, the way of Jesus, because the truth is everything that we have in our hands, when we finally come to the place of recognizing how beautiful it is and how precious, even if it's small, even if it's only five and two, we recognize how beautiful and wondrous and mysterious it is, our instinct in that moment is to then protect it. You're not going to touch it. You're not going to take it. You're not going to harm it. I'm going to defend it, and I'm going to protect it, and nothing's going to come of it. But the mystery of the Eucharistic life is that it was put in your hands so that at at just the right time, in God's perfect timing, it must be broken. If it is unbroken, it cannot be given. If it is unbro- if your life is unbroken, it cannot be used as effectively. You heard what our guest said last week. The interruptions of our life are the places where the interventions of God take place. And think of it this way. If you had a teacher, a preacher, a boss, someone who you hope would inspire you, if you heard them say only things about how perfect they are, if you heard someone only talk about how they've never made a mistake and how great they are and how, how strong they are, that's nowhere near as inspiring as someone who is able to show you some scar tissue because of mistakes made or places where they've been wounded, places where things have broken and fallen apart. The Eucharistic life is a life of yieldedness to take the life that God has given us, to look in our hands and recognize that my five and two have been given to me for a particular purpose and I give thanks for the grace of it all. 
but I recognize that I'm now being called to a radical relinquishment, that I must be willing to relinquish the very thing that I think is most precious. Do you remember what Jesus said? He said, you can have a seed in your hand, and if it remains in your hand, it's just a seed. But if the seed is released and it falls to the ground and dies, then it can rise up to new life. What is it in your life right now that you are most afraid of relinquishing? It is the most counterintuitive, counterinstinctive thing that we can do as, as our species. <laughs> is to relinquish the thing that we think has the highest value, but the mystery of the Christ life, the Eucharistic life, is to take, to bless, to break, so that we may give. And giving our life away is the whole point. But one last word about this Eucharistic life. If you intend to give your life away, this is not just a decision that you can make. You can't just say, you know, Sean, you're, yeah, you, you make a good point. I think I'll give my life away today. If, if giving your life away is, is, is a decision of your will, the trouble is you may decide to give it away today, but you may decide to not give it away tomorrow. It's not a choice of simply giving your life away or keeping it. Giving your life away in the Eucharistic life comes as a part of a bigger yieldedness that we give to Christ, a bigger yieldedness in which we have already said, this is my life. I take it. I look at what I have, and it's grace, and I relinquish it into your care. And then in our brokenness, we give our lives because we cannot not give it. And that's the pattern you're invited to live Eucharistic rhythm. But you can't give something away that you've never embraced. So it may be that somebody here today has, has, has been listening to the words I'm saying, and you're like, you know, that sounds, that sounds freeing. That sounds liberating. It sounds great, but I don't know how to start. It starts with prayer. And it's not a complex prayer. You say, God, I recognize that I have been trying to hold on and take the reins of my life for a long time and all that's very necessary and very good for a while but I recognize that you're trying to give me a life with all of its blessings and curses with all of its ups and downs all of its challenges for some reason I yield to it I receive it and I want you to help me see what you've given me my five loaves and my two fish as a gift a grace from you and I relinquish it that you may use me. If you want to pray that prayer today, maybe it's the very first time you've ever prayed a prayer like that. Maybe you've never expressed to anybody outside of yourself that you want to, to live a pattern of life that, that mirrors Jesus. Today you can do that. Right here among your family, right here among friends. Because we're about to sing a song. After I pray, we're going to sing. And after we, we sing, during the singing, you're invited to come down these aisles to, to our pastors who will hold your hand and pray with you. And you may not know how to articulate the thing that's happening in you, and you don't have to. But saying yes 
to the Eucharistic life is saying yes to the way of Jesus. Come and let's walk that way together. Let's pray. God, this thanksgiving, Lord, there's so many things for which we can be grateful, but may we first say how grateful we are for this invitation that you give us to surrender our lives, to yield ourselves before you. Lord, it is hard for us to see everything that's in our hand as a grace, as a gift, because some things that are in our hands are not clearly blessings. They're challenges, they're stresses, they're anxieties, they're, they're pains, and yet we recognize that you work best in those places where we are most helpless. Will you show somebody this day how to relinquish so that you may rescue? In the name of Jesus Christ, the Lord of life, we pray. Amen.